Time now for Scoops with Danny Mac, the podcast on 101 ESPN. Welcome into the show. This show is dedicated to Bob Gibson, the Hall of Famer, one of the greatest competitors that baseball and sports has ever seen. The numbers speak for themselves. 251 wins, tops in Cardinal history, 255 complete games, 3,000 teen strength breakouts, the 1.12 ERA, the no-hitter in 1970, 1968 MVP, Cy Young Award winner, nine gold gloves, two World Series championships, and enshrined in baseball's Hall of Fame in 1981. The 2020 Cardinals were eliminated on Friday night in San Diego. They found out about the passing of Hall of Famer Bob Gibson. Mike Schilt talked about the loss and also the loss of Gibson. Well, when it rains, it pours. We knew he wasn't in great shape the last couple of days, you know, so and somewhat recently, but it's, a, it's an official another big loss right there with Lou that, you know, it's hard to swallow. For the Gibson family, our hearts and prayers go out to him, and we know he's in a place with more comfort and peace, and but it's, it's a big loss for our organization. Everything that I talked about, Bob Gibson stood for. He stood up for himself, stood up for his teammates. He was an elite athlete, elite competitor. He was a winner. I think he would have enjoyed playing on this team. We're going to miss him. One of the longest tenured St. Louis Cardinals is catcher Yadier Molina, who was overcome with emotion. It's kind of hard losing the lane. Um, Game is a game. I mean, you can lose a game, but when you lose, when you lose a guy like Bob Gibson, laying just hurt. I just want to say that I wish the family the best. Give some family. Um, we lose another one. Caldean Nation lose another one. Tears were strolling down his cheeks. It's the most emotional I've ever seen. Yadier Molina. A unique relationship that has been formed over the years is one of Jack Flaherty and Bob Gibson. He's a legend first and foremost. I and mean, then he's somebody who you know I was lucky enough to develop a relationship with and I was lucky enough to, to learn from. And you don't get that from, from people like that very often. You don't get the opportunity to learn from somebody of that caliber and somebody who is that good. Um, very often. As word got out that Bob Gibson had passed away, many of his contemporaries are giving their thoughts and prayers to the family and also talking about what it was like to face Bob Gibson. It wasn't easy, as you could imagine. Tony Perez, the Hall of Famer. Well, he, he threw hard. I mean, well, he used all his stuff. Uh, when he was home, he was the toughest thing you can face at the time. When you on the on the World Series, like I see him, we never in the World Series with him, but but uh, I see the World Series. He went against Detroit and, and the Yankees and some of the teams in the American League, and he and he was a, a guy who, who take a shot and uh, uh, he didn't want to lose. He didn't want to lose a game. He he wants to win every game he pitch and he give it hundred percent all the time. It's, it's, he was tough. He was tough. He was a tough guy to face, and you know anytime. And, and he always made the pitch when he needed, when he needed. That's uh, that's that's the toughest thing about it. And uh, he pitched inside. His fastball always been inside. And when he threw one, and for a strike, it's in the, on the outside corner. 
with, with heart, you know, and his slider was, he controlled that pitch so much, and you know, he didn't have to throw fastball sometimes. So many great moments in the history of Bob Gibson in his career. One of the best, game one of the 1968 World Series. 17 strikeouts, a record in game number one. Danny McLean talked about over the weekend being on the other side of that. He could throw strikes anytime he wanted with any pitch he wanted. Uh, and I'll never forget when I uh, hit against him in the World Series. I'm going to tell you, um, you know, first of all, it was a day game. So the light is different during a late day game, as, as Rico knows, especially down there. And uh, lo and behold, and when he let that ball go, he came right out of the white shirts in, mm. in the left center field. Uh, and I'm telling you, as hard as he threw, it was impossible to hit him to begin with. But when he started throwing that fastball uh, pretty early in the ball game, I mean, you, I used to say when I went up against Sam McDowell in his early days, I used to listen for the ball to try to find it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That day, Gibson pitched the greatest <laughs> game I ever saw pitched in the major leagues. It was 17 strikeouts, and I'm going to say this to you. It was easy. It was as easy as you could go. I mean, everybody come come back and, you know, they're complaining about that they couldn't see and things like that. Besides that, you know, couldn't see hell. The guy struck out 17. Give him more credit than that. So, yeah. uh, and they eventually did. As tough and as fiery a competitor that Bob Gibson was, there was also a softer side to Gibson. And trying to find out who the man was, Jim Cott, a former Cardinal, talked about having a dinner party with Bob Gibson post-playing career and what that was like. We had Sandy, Bob, Timmy McCarver, Bill White, and their wives and significant others. And uh, talking to Timmy McCarver this morning about it, and it's one of the great nights that we've all had. And that's where I really found out, uh, you know, if you weren't a Cardinal, uh, Bob didn't have a lot to do with you. You know, you had to be on his <laughs> team. But I really found out a lot about him as, uh, as a person then. And then after that, uh, going into St. Louis, mainly through Tim, uh, we had lunch together, and we both had motor homes. So uh, I got to know Bob, the person. And I, I think in this day and time, it might be good to point out, if the country had the culture that the Cardinals had in the 60s, as far as social injustice and racial injustice, we'd be a better country because uh, they really created an atmosphere there. And a lot of it's because of Gibby, you know. Gibby had a sign in his, his locker, uh, I'm not prejudiced, I hate everybody. But, you know, he was really a softy and nice man to get to know, and I was really honored that I did get to know him as a person other than just what a tremendous pitcher he was. There were some great stories around that table. It been nice to have a, a microphone in front. I remember one question my wife said, well, Bob, I heard you were a pretty mean pitcher. You threw at hitters. He said, no, I never threw at him. They just never moved out of the way. Gibson was more than just a baseball player, a complex man, and a man that cared. I, I just love baseball for giving me the opportunity to get out of from where I used to be. Born in Omaha, Nebraska, and lived in the housing projects, and I, I was one of the lucky few. 
I used to go to the state penitentiary every year, and, and I would visit and talk to some of the guys there, and there had to be a handful of guys that I grew up with, and we both, we all were heading in one direction, and I was lucky enough to go this way, and that they went that way, and I, I would see them every year, and I thought about how fortunate I was to be able to play baseball or at least do something that get, would get me away from all of that stuff that I grew up with. I, I want to thank uh, and congratulate, congratulate the uh, alumni for doing what they do for the young kids in the country and introducing them to the game that I love so much. And I hope they continue to do it. Thank you very much. Coming up on the show, I'm going to replay excerpts from one of the most special nights that I've been a part of. It was called An Evening with the Cardinals, and it included Bob Gibson and Tim McCarver. I've spoken to Tim multiple times over the weekend, and as you can imagine, this has not been an easy weekend for Tim. They are the best of friends, and this has been a very emotional, a very tough weekend for Tim. But on this night, it was a night of laughs, a night of fun, and maybe we'll pull back the curtain and get an idea of just how tight, how much fun these guys had over the years, and just how special that relationship is. Tim McCarver is one of my best friends in the world, and these two are the best of friends, and I think you'll really enjoy it. But it's Bob Gibson, Tim McCarver, myself, and Evening with the Cardinals. It's a, a tribute to Bob Gibson, and hopefully you'll enjoy this as well on 101 ESPN. show dedicated to Bob Gibson and this is part of the speaker series that I conduct at the ballpark and this is from a few seasons ago it was with Tim McCarver Bob Gibson very intimate setting at the ballpark and one of the topics naturally that we got into was his 1968 season and the great year of 1.12 what I, what I think about more more so than that is that I lost nine games and I, I'm still trying to figure that out. Uh, we just, we didn't, we didn't score a lot of runs. And, and uh, if you gave up a run, there was a pretty good chance you were going to lose. <laughs> so I, uh, I get a guy on. Uh, I'll tell you, here's another story. Tim, Tim, my buddy Tim. We, we get a guy on first and third with nobody out. And... Uh, Tim comes out to the mound. This is one of the few trips he made to the mound. And sometimes it's absolutely necessary to come out because we've got to straighten some, straighten some things out. And Tim says, um, you know, we got a man on first and third, and there, there are no outs. He says, if the ball comes to you, Maxville is covering second. So on a double play, we go to Maxville. I says, no. He says, what? I said, no. W what do you mean? I said, if the ball comes to me, I'm coming to you. The way you play the game. That's the way we're playing the game today. If it comes to me, I'm coming to you. I'm not going to give up a run because we only score one run, and I need two to win. You had a bigger lead, though, then. You had a five. Jim Ray Hart. No. Jim Ray Hart of the Giants let off the inning with a triple. Bob walked the next guy. And that's what caused this nobody out first and third and the ball. And sure enough, Jim Ray Hart ended the inning on third base. He didn't score. You see? But with, but with Bob, that's it's one instant. But 
the, the best example of Bob and how the Cardinals didn't score runs that year, and that's true, 1968. We were in Pittsburgh, and we lost one to nothing. And Bob had pitched that night. Again. Again, one to nothing. He says again. I think he lost four one nothing games that year. Four, maybe four five, or five. Four or maybe five. Maybe five. And um, I went by him. And, I, I, you know, this is like the third or fourth time this has happened. And I kind of whacked him on the back. And I said, Bob, you, you did a great job. And Bob said, great job, my ass. <laughs> In front of everybody, all the time. And I thought, oh, boy, I, I'm sorry I did this said great job and then he said you guys need to score some bleeping runs <laughs> and and then maybe th anyway i went to shave and everything and i felt all bad i don't even know why i felt bad i was telling him nice job I mean, he loses one nothing gave up one run in nine innings and i went to shave and bob came back in typical gibsonian fashion he was apologizing and he whacked me on the rear end with a towel and things went on, but I've I've never forgotten that um, that moment. It was it was a gesture of uh, of really who Bob is and what he's all about. What was it like catching one point one two? What made him so successful that year? Well, what it was like, I guess, more than anything else, is that I caught a lot of the pitches that Bob threw because. The, Nobody hit him. I mean, it's that simple, really. Uh, I mean, to, ch to have some sport change their rules uh, because of one performer. One. And, and, and it's not to say that, that the rest of the pitching in the National League was that shabby. I mean, Juan Marichal won 26 games that year. Uh, Gaylord Perry was emerging into a Hall of Famer, but there was one man who stood alone, and he made them change the mound from 15 to 10 inches in one season. And I don't think the funny thing, and all of Bob's friends love this, Bob's never forgiven baseball because of that, right? Yeah, I was wondering if I could still sue them over that. I don't I ought to be able to do, get some kind of money out of it. So you hear, Bob, that they're going to do this and change the rules and lower the mound. What was your reaction? You know, I, I wasn't even aware of it, uh, that that's what they were going to do. And I didn't know at the time that, that it was going to, after they did it, that it was going to affect the pitching that much. And as far as I was concerned, it, it, didn't, it really didn't hurt me that much because I threw more uh, three-quarters but the guys who threw straight over the top like walk-up pitches now, they had the big problem trying to get the ball down, especially on their breaking ball. They hung a lot of breaking balls, but I didn't throw a lot of curveballs anyway, so I, I just kind of laughed at them. <laughs> Change it, do whatever you want to do. You know, We weren't going to score any more runs, so it didn't make any difference. The first game, by the way, of the 1968 World Series, Bob set an all-time record by striking out 17, 17 Detroit Tigers. <laughs> Willie Horton, 
Willie Horton was the left fielder for the Detroit Tigers. And he swears to this day, he still works in Detroit at the ballpark. And I see him, I used to see him more than occasionally when doing the network stuff, but he still thinks that last pitch hit him. <laughs> I said, Willie, that was a strike. He said, that ball was inside. I said, Willie, that ball was not inside. All you have to do is look at it. The ball was a strike, but it was a backup slider that Bob threw. And Bob threw so many backup sliders to right-handed batters that they would see the spin of the ball and think it was outside and go outside to hit it, and the ball stayed inside, and it was a strike. It was in the strike zone. It was almost unto. You didn't try to do that. No, no. The, the backup sliders are usually thrown when a, when a pitcher wants to throw a slider and he overthrows it. He tries to throw it too hard. He wants to make it break a lot really quick, and he gets on top. You have to be on top of it. When I say on top, I mean up here rather than over here. And uh, you let the ball go this way rather than that way. The slider has to be thrown that way, not this way. And a backup slider, what happens is you get on top too much and you try to snap it, and instead of it going that way, it goes that way. And you don't throw backup sliders on purpose, but it's usually for overthrowing. Most of the time, when you say, ah, it's a backup slider, the guy is overthrowing the ball. And it works sometimes, but I wouldn't advise it. <laughs> Not for young pitchers. No, though. don't advise it. For both of you, I'll start with Tim. 64, 67, 68. What's the best team? I don't think there's any question. 1967. Um, well, I mean, I'm talking about really good ball, uh, ball clubs and, and really good ball players. And, and some left after 1964. I mean, Kenny Boyer was no longer there. Uh, Dick Grote was no longer there. And there were... Uh, a, a lot of guys who had left, but the one guy that soldered our team together from a base running standpoint and made the 1967 team click, and I mean click like no, we'd, we'd never made mistakes. We were all very stubborn, and there was nobody who, who made fewer mistakes and was more stubborn than Lou Brock. He, he, Lou Brock taught us what daring would do on the bases. We weren't as fast as Lou, but we paid attention to Lou and saw the defense when Lou was running the bases. And you talk about uh, scared, nervous, all defensive, the middle infielders in particular, with Lou running the bases that the outfielders on shallow fly balls if Lou was on third and less than two outs. I mean, this guy was, the, I, I know Ricky Henderson was a very exciting base runner, but for my money, Lou Brock was the most important base runner um, of our time. The best thing about that ball club is that we didn't make a, a, a lot of mental mistakes. You're going to make errors. If you're, if you're out there, that ball will make a fool out of you a lot of times. 
and you're going to make some physical errors, but you'll find that the teams that make the least amount of mental errors and is a good ball club are usually the teams that are going to win. And we made very few mental mistakes. And, and one of the reasons we didn't make a lot of mistakes is that we had, um, we had a system. We had a system on the ball club when somebody did something just really dumb. Uh, the next day, this is be, true, the next day before the game started, we get in the clubhouse and everybody gets dressed and everything. And before we would go out to work out, we go, okay, guys, we're going to have a baseball quiz today. And everybody would gather around because they all knew what was going to happen. Somebody was going to get really run into the ground. And, and it usually it was, it was Dave Ricketts or it was myself. And what we would do is emulate the person who made this boner here. And said, bring it up to everybody. We're going to, and you know, and like in spring training, in, in the clubhouse in spring training, we had this big pillar that went up. It was metal. And we take a baseball bat and we go bang, bang, bang on this pillar. And everybody said, uh oh, baseball quiz. And we all run in and sit around. You guys are going, we're going to give you three guesses to figure out who this is. And then we would do this really dumb thing that somebody did. And then you only had three guesses. And we says, oh, let's see who that could be. That could be, it's Lou Brock. <laughs> and everybody said, yes, that's it. And they would cost him $25. And so we were all aware of doing dumb things. And so we did make, uh, we made physical errors, and you're going to do that. That's the name of the game. You're going to make those. But you can't do the dumb things. You can't be the guy who's on first base and a guy on second base with two outs and the guy on first base get picked off. You can't do that. That is stupid. First of all, where are you going? There's a guy on second. You can't go anywhere. Unless you just absolutely fall asleep at first, there's no reason to get picked off. It happens. It happens. If you, if you live long enough, you're going to do something stupid. Everybody but me. I never did any of that stuff. Tim did it. So, <laughs> so that's true, because it called, what we did, I mean, there was humor involved in when you screwed up. It was kind of fun. Not fun to screw up, but we made it fun, and nobody made it more fun than Bob. More with Tim McCarver, Bob Gibson. This is 101 ESPN. More of what you want to hear. Scoops with Danny Mac in podcast form on 101 ESPN. We continue as we hear from Bob Gibson and Tim McCarver. This is part of our speaker series from a couple of years ago. And uh, one of the questions that I asked Tim McCarver, and this is really a fun segment, but one of the questions I asked Tim McCarver was about going into the Cardinals Hall of Fame. Well, I've come full circle with the Cardinals. I signed as a 17-year-old 10 days out of high school uh, in 1959. Uh, I took a trip with my, the scout that signed me, and uh, I took infield with the Cardinals, and then I went to Waterloo, Iowa uh, to play for the Keokuk Cardinals 
And the umpiring crew that night featured Brent Musburger behind home plate. And that's how my career started. My very first game was with Brent. I don't know if you knew this or have cared about it. <laughs> I cared, Tim. <laughs> that means he doesn't. But anyway, Brent Musburger was a home plate umpire, and, and that kind of started things, and I was with the Cardinals from 59 through 69, and then I was traded in, a, in a, an epic deal with Kurt Flood, uh, and of course, Kurt uh, uh, elected not to go, and, uh, and history was in the making. It went to the Supreme Court, and six years later, free agency hit. Um, and then, of course, I, uh, I worked a lot of postseason play for the networks. I worked with Joe Buck for 18 years, and um, I did some Cardinal uh, World Series games. The, the most iconic that I can remember was game six of the 2011 season. How can you go wrong? It's, it's amazing about that World Series in that everybody remembers Game 6 so much more than they remember Game 7. And, ga and Game 7 was a tremendous game. And had it not been for a pickoff in the first inning by Yadier Molina, the Cardinals may have lost that game. That was a pivotal play in that series. But anyway, and I'm back with the Cardinals, so I've come full circle. And, um, and being voted into the Hall of Fame means everything to me, uh, because it, it, it really does. Particularly with a guy like Mark McGuire, uh, and to go in with him uh, is very, very special. Uh, he says it's special for him. Uh, I, th I think it's more special for me to go in with him. Uh, because of what he did for this organization for uh, very impactful years in the late 90s and the early 2000s. So I hope I summed that up, what the Cardinals Hall of Fame means to me. It uh, means a great deal. And as a tag, this guy means a great deal to me too. Bob, we were talking last night. The relationship with Tim got off to a little bit of a rocky start. Ah! <laughs> a little rocky, but yet you guys found common ground on the field, off the field, and you become the best of friends. Well, yeah, Tim was a, a little stubborn. I, I guess we all were a little stubborn back in those days. Uh, we, had, uh, we had an awful lot of problems back in there. Uh, late 50s, I have to admit that it was a long time ago that I, I made my appearance with the Cardinals, but back in the, the late uh, 50s and 60s, there were a lot of problems, not only with the Cardinals and not only with the baseball players, but uh, with our country. And I came up during that time. So I was, a little, I was a little angry, and I'm not even sure today what I was angry about, but I was angry. 
And life was just very difficult. It was very difficult. And when I met Tim, he was very difficult. <laughs> but uh, as the years went on, we, we got to like each other. And it got to the point where, and I hate to say this, it got to the point where we loved each other. And we love each other now, and it's just wonderful. It's awesome. Why did it click between you two on the field? How did it click? Why did it click? Well, it, it clicked because I uh, did pretty much what I wanted to do. <laughs> and I, I, I wouldn't pay a lot of attention to what Tim suggested. <laughs> and we got on just fine. I had no problem with it. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you the genesis of that was Johnny Keene, our manager, who took over for Solly Hemus in 1961. My first full year was 1963. And he would say to me that there's one pitcher you're having a problem with. And I said, mm, who? And John said, Gibson, you've got to slow him down. And I said, John, he doesn't want to be slowed down. He's told me that. And, and now I'm 21, I'm trying to make the team. And I said, John, you know, and I had, to, I had to word this delicately. I said, John, I mean, you're the manager. If, if you want to slow him down, why don't you suggest it? And, and honestly, to this day, I think John was afraid to slow Bob down. And I said, he likes to work fast. And he told me, Whatever you think of first, put it down. If I don't want it, I'll shake it off. That's pretty, that's pretty basic stuff. Well, right? For, for yeah. anybody, by the way, that, that watches our games, they know that, that you love mound visits, Tim. Oh, You're man. a big fan of those. Well, Bob, Bob, Dan, Bob taught me that. That what should be, what's talked about on the mound, most of it's superfluous anyway. All of it is superfluous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of it. it is. I'll, I'll guarantee you what mound visits are all about. The pitching coach comes out and he says, how do you feel? you got to tell him about Barney Schultz. I can't really tell you everything about Barney because some of the language that I use is just uh, not familiar. <laughs> I can't say it. But, but you got to, I mean, Barney threw a knuckleball. And to give you an idea about Bob's idea about, uh, about mound visits, uh, Barney used to come to the mound, and, and Bob would look at him and say, Barney, you threw a knuckleball. Now, if I threw a knuckleball, it, it would be right for you to be out here. But I don't throw a knuckleball. <laughs> so get on back in the dugout. <laughs> right or wrong? I mean, well, that's absolutely right. Barney, <laughs> he uh, came out quite often. And it, it really wasn't very helpful because it, there was not a lot he could tell me. But I, I really didn't know what he could tell me. If, if there was going to be an intelligent conversation, it was going to be between Tim and me, not Barney and me, you know, because I didn't throw a knuckleball. And I thought that was kind of strange that we had a knuckleball pitcher that was our pitching coach. 
and I'd already been pitching for about 12, 13 years, and I don't know what Barney could have told me. As a matter of fact, he, did, he never told me anything that was helpful. Nothing. <laughs> well. And then, and then one day, one night in Philadelphia, Bob was uncharacteristically being hit around. I think the Phillies had scored like seven runs and three and a third or something like that. No, and, that, that never happened. <laughs> so, no. Uh, uh, may, maybe maybe four earned runs over maybe, three. Maybe maybe three four. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was nine. an unusual outing, and finally Barney Red Red kept saying, "Barney, go out and talk to him," and Barney go out and talk to him. And I was playing first base that night. Joe Torrey was at third, and Ted Simmons was the catcher. It was 1973, and Barney comes out, and it took him forever to get out there because he knew Bob did not want to see him on the mound, obviously. And when Barney got there, Bob said, Barney, where have you been? <laughs> and you finally show up. Remember that? <laughs> That's a true story. I don't remember that one. Actually, you know, when uh, you, you see the guys run out and pile up around the mound, and especially when you see the uh, third baseman, the shortstop, and the second baseman, the first baseman, and they all come, you know, what in the hell are they coming out there for to begin with? <laughs> They're trying to see what Tim is telling me or, or what? And so I don't like for any of them to come. When you, come, when you see guys go out there and maybe we have a situation where uh, we want to bring the infield in or we want to do this or we want a trick play or something, then that's fine. There should be a special sign for everybody to come in. Otherwise, don't come out to the mound. Stay away. If, if, the, if the catcher is coming out and he wants to talk to me, then that's fine. I don't need the rest of you guys to listen to what he's going to tell me. It's not a secret. You know, and I just don't believe that that we should have a meeting on the mound with the whole team. Why not bring the outfielders in, too? <laughs> if we're going to have something that's tricky, the outfielders need to know about it, too. You know. So, Tim, were these... Uh, a couple of fans on giveaway night or something like that. So were these conversations on the mound one-way conversations? Bob talking to you and you just... Kind of nodding, and I would never talk. I would never talk. Bob told me, I mean, the famous line, and this actually happened when I was my first full year in 1963. I was out there, and Bob said, Tim, why are you out here? Why don't you get behind the plate? Because the only thing you know about pitching is that it's hard to hit. <laughs> well, it's that, a true that, story. That, that is a true story, but you got to know what's behind all of it. Um, you know, Tim was a very, very nervous type person. He still is, as a matter of fact. And, and he, he hated for somebody to get on him about anything, you know. And so I just like to give him a hard time because he'd come out, and he didn't come that often, but, you know, I stopped him from coming as often as he did, and he kind of stayed away. 
But he'd come out and he'd say something that was pretty obvious. There's a man on first. I'm like, should I just put him there? I, 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 I know he's there. You know. Or, By the way, Bob did not have a pickoff throughout his career. Not one. And neither has any of the rest of them. All they do is throw the ball down the right field line and the guy goes to third. How many pickoffs have you seen at first other than the catcher picking the guy off? None of the pitchers. So you're really wasting your time throwing the ball over there. You're better off stepping off, looking over, and say, hey, you know, don't get off so far. Because if you do, I'm going to step off again. So just get a little closer. But they turn around and throw, and they throw. And they never pick anybody off. You've never seen a right-hander pick anybody off. Rarely. Hardly ever. So don't do that. <laughs> you know, step off, step off, throw the ball back. If you want to have anything to say to Tim about the way things are going, wait till the inning is over, and let's talk about it in the dugout. That's what that, you need that's to do. A, that, to me, is a great point. And I think if you, if you get rid of the meetings on the mound, games would speed up 10 to 12 minutes every day. I mean, there's so much time in baseball, and Commissioner Manfred wants to, wants to solve the problem of the game going too long, get rid of the meetings on the mound, and that's a step forward. Well, I don't mean to cut you off, but you just you sit and listen because this you is can the easiest money I ever made. You can try, and you can try as hard as you want. You're not gonna speed up a baseball game. If you want to speed something up, then go watch another game. It won't be baseball. Baseball has been. You know, you save you save three seconds here and four seconds there. And in 10 seconds here, maybe. Intentional walk. And, and, and they're going to speed baseball up. And what takes more time than anything else now, the reruns, when a guy, when a manager complains about a play and we stop, and now we have five minutes where they can see whether the guy's out. And then an umpire knew he was out to begin with. And so we go through this whole thing and go, yeah, he was out. You know, and I think that that wastes more time than, uh, than anything else in baseball. And it's only two or three minutes, but w what are we in a hurry? Where are we going? <laughs> if, if you're going to watch a baseball game, you got to take time in your schedule. It's going to be three hours, folks. When I pitched, it only took two hours. <laughs> yeah. Ben Scully, the great Ben Scully, said at one time that Bob Gibson pitches like he's double parked. I, I, I'll tell you what, what takes uh, a lot of times, and, and it's all a part of baseball, but we don't really think about it. It's ball one, ball two, and strike one, and ball three, and then a couple of foul balls. And when I pitched, the idea was to make the batter hit the ball as quickly as possible. And don't hit it too hard but hit it. And now it seems to me that the pitchers are trying to make the hitter miss the ball. They don't want him to hit it. And so they're all pitching from behind. And, and what happens when you pitch from behind, you have uh, your choice of pitchers get real slim. I can throw strike one, strike two, and I can throw a number of pitches in a number of different places, and the guy may swing at it. But I throw ball one, ball two, 
And chances are he's going to take strike one, strike two, if he's a good hitter. And so not getting ahead of the hitter when you're pitching is what takes more time. So, you know, they're, they're going at it the wrong way. You're not going to stop this game from lasting two and a half to three hours. You're not going to do it. So stop complaining about it. If you want to go see another sport, go. Amazing insight with Bob Gibson and Tim McCarver. Back to wrap it up in a moment. More of what you want to hear. Scoops with Danny Mac in podcast form on 101 ESPN. As I wrap up the show, I hope you'll take a moment and head to the Cardinals Twitter feed. And on that, you will see some incredible images of Bob Gibson. And with that, you'll also hear this to those images. Thanks, Bob Gibson, for everything that you've done for the city of St. Louis and providing so many fans, generations of fans, memories that will last a lifetime. Rest in peace, Bob Gibson. My baseball career started, I guess, when I was about 10 years old. And I had an older brother, Josh. He's the one responsible for me learning all of the fundamentals of the game. And by God, did he teach some fundamentals. As far as my playing is concerned, I guess I would, I would have to say that there, there are a number of people that helped me grow up. My first manager in baseball, Johnny Keane, he showed me that he had confidence in me, and I guarantee you that nobody can participate in any kind of sports without confidence. And when I realized that he had confidence in me, then I felt that I had a lot in myself. Red Shengdis, he probably had more confidence in, than anyone. He's probably responsible for me winning as many ball games as I did. Red would leave me in there Regardless of whether the score was 20 to nothing, he figured that I would hold him and we'd get 21. Playing baseball was my life. And it was something that I, I devoted 100% to. One writer asked me, what did I want to be remembered as? And I thought about it. And I said that I want to be remembered as a person, a competitor, that gave 100% every time I went out on the field. Sometimes I wasn't too good, but nobody could accuse me of cheating them out of what they paid to see. You have been listening to the TV voice of the St. Louis Cardinals, Scoops with Danny Mack on 101 ESPN.